Hello, and welcome to Inside Policy Talks, the premier video podcast of the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, Ottawa's most influential public policy think tank. At the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, we harness the power of Canada's brightest minds to tackle Canada's greatest challenges. Learn more at macdonaldlaurier.ca. So welcome, everybody, to MLI's podcast. I'm Aaron Woodrick. I'm the director of the Domestic Policy Program here at the McDonald-Laurie Institute. Very pleased to be joined today by John Hartley, who is one of our new senior fellows here at MLI. He's also a research fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity and an economics PhD student at Stanford University, from whence he joins us today. So welcome, John, and thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Aaron. Uh, Now, uh, the reason I wanted to talk to you today is you recently published a very interesting piece in The Hub, which is one of Canada's newest and I think most interesting uh, media outlets. And the title of your piece was, Is the New Ottawa Consensus Killing Our Economy? So maybe I obviously could start at the obvious place for those who have not read your piece yet. Um, What is your piece about? What are you talking about when you say the new Ottawa consensus? Sure thing. So there's this notion of an old, um, or, or the, this old notion of a Washington consensus, which was originally a set of 10 policy ideas that were uh, written down in 1989 by British economist John Williamson, uh, who spent most of his career at the Pearson Institute for International Economics. And it really was meant to summarize uh, the sort of uh, free market, uh, someone call um, neoliberal uh, economic policy ideas. Uh, that arguably sort of hit their peak um, in terms of popularity uh, in the late uh, 1980s and, and uh, early 1990s, uh, and uh, were influential ideas uh, not just in in the U.S. Uh, and in developed market economies, but also in, in promoting economic development uh, around the world. And so, those original ten ideas were essentially this: you know, one fiscal policy discipline, two, uh, you know, redirect sort of public spending. Uh, away from sort of uh, big government uh, uh, sort of uh, industrial subsidies toward um, uh, broad-based sort of uh, uh, services like you know education, healthcare, uh, infra- infrastructure investment. Three tax reform for uh, market-determined interest rates, uh, and and five uh, having competitive sort of flexible uh, exchange rates for a long time until the 1970s. Uh, exchange rates were were fixed. On the sort of Bretton Woods system uh, for a long period of time from the Second World War to uh, through the early 1970s. Uh, six is trade liberalization. Seven was liberalization of inward foreign direct investment. Eight was privatization of, of state enterprises. Nine is deregulation. And 10 was legal security of pro- property rights. And so initially, it was um, when it was originally written down, just referring to policies that were sort of being adopted by some Latin American economies. Uh, like Chile in response to the sort of socialist or more socialist economic policy regimes of the 1970s. But it, it kind of grew to take a, a life uh, of its own, that the term Washington consensus, to really just describe sort of this um, orientation, relatively new orientation toward um, sort of free market um, economic policy. Um, and, and, uh, and that was sort of promoted through several uh, uh, U.S. Uh, White House administrations. Uh, uh, internationally through aid agencies like the IMF and the World Bank. It was really uh, a catalyst for economic mobility uh, in, in lifting uh, billions of people out of poverty. Uh, so you could think uh, of uh, the growth of 
the Asian tiger economies like you know, South Korea, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Singapore. These countries went from being fairly poor uh, to being on the same level as developed countries uh, in terms of GDP per capita by sort of the late, uh, by the end of the uh, 20th century, early, uh, early part of the 21st century. Um, and also you had other countries like in South America, like Chile, that adopted these sorts of uh, free market economic reforms um, uh, to great success. And, and places like China and India that started to grow um, after both the Deng Xiaoping and, and Rao reforms of the 1980s and, and, and 1990s, respectively. Um, you know, there's obviously um, a very, very um, high uh, concentration of the world population in those countries. So even just moving their GDP per capita by, so, you know, uh, 10000 dollars $10, is, is huge when you think about it um, in, in terms of uh, improving um, poverty on a global scale. This sort of period was really um, sort of uh, dubbed the age of Milton Friedman by Harvard economist Andre Schleifer. And, and it, it can't be sort of uh, overstated in my mind how it, uh, how it coincided with rapid reductions in absolute poverty and you know, the share of people in the world living under $1 a day fell significantly. Um, and you also had significant reductions in infant mortality around these times, big increases in life expectancy and educational attainment. Uh, and I think a, a quite a few economists would argue that, um, uh, that, that those free market reforms had a lot to do with shaping incentives um, to allow um, these economies to grow and, and, and to promote uh, widespread um, improvements um, in, in economic well-being and, and uh, these sorts of uh, really significant uh, reductions in, in poverty that uh, I think can't be ignored. Okay. Well, and and I mean, the key word of all of this, of course, is that it was a consensus. So I think, uh, is it fair to say that that part of the reason this was so remarkable is that you saw sort of politicians on both sides of the aisle in a number of countries, whether sort of Bill Clinton, uh, Tony Blair in Canada, you, you saw the Liberal Party in the 1990s. These are, you know, there sort of was a consensus across both sides of the aisle of, uh, of this sort of um, neoliberal economics, fiscal prudence, lower taxes, um, and that was kind of what made it a little different than what came before it, where there was a lot more argument over what direction we wanted the economies to go in. Exactly, exactly. And, and it was a pretty big change, um, you know, you could think in the U.S. from the, the, the Nixon era of, of say, price controls or, or um, you know, the, the Jimmy Carter era, which actually um, uh, uh, actually was maybe the start of this trend. You know, Jimmy mm -hmm. Carter and the Jimmy Carter administration started doing things like deregulating the airlines. You know, this, this big period of deregulation um, arguably started before Ronald Reagan even took office, even though Ronald Reagan is certainly, I think, uh, the, the sort of poster child um, politician behind um, promoting um, the you know, what, what, what eventually became you know, as the Washington Consensus, mm -hmm. sort of free market economic policies. But that's exactly right. You know, it's continued sort of the, through the, um, uh, you know, the, the Bush uh, 41, Bill Clinton era, you had... Um, you know, the, the NAFTA era on, uh, that, that certainly uh, you know, was a cornerstone of uh, the, the Mulroney um, conservatives. And, and there was quite a bit of debate in, in the Conservative Party of Canada at the, at the time. Um, it was a big part of the um, McDonald Commission, which was um, all about reviving economic growth in, in Canada. Um, but that, that continued uh, throughout the, um, you know, the 90s. Um, you know, fiscal reforms both uh, on, on both sides of uh, the U.S.-Canada border, uh, you know, the Christian uh, years in the Bill Clinton years, uh, and then through the the 2000s too. Uh, you know, I think uh, both the uh, Bush 43 uh, south of the border and, and you know, the Harper years, you know, uh, getting some uh, fiscal surpluses 
um, going um, in the Harper years, um, really sort of up until uh, the, uh, you know, the, the the Great Recession um, and its aftermath is it's when this uh, arguably started to wane. Yeah, and so let's talk a bit about that too, because you talk about this new Ottawa consensus, as you called it. Um, obviously, we live in a bit of a different world. You talk about that period throughout the '90s and sort of the early 2000s. Um, you know, I'm going to guess that perhaps the sort of starting trigger point was the financial crisis in the in the late aughts. Um, but but in terms of this new consensus, what uh, what are the sort of key elements of this new consensus, and and what marks it as very different from the old consensus? So I'd argue that there's been a, you know a, a pretty rapid shift uh, in, in sort of thinking. Um, certainly in in the sort of past uh, you know 15 years following the uh, the global financial crisis, and, and I think the sort of uh, 10 ideas uh, that have um, become ascendant in uh, I'd say both uh, Washington and Ottawa um, uh, across uh, sort of administrations uh, in the U.S. at this point. Um, our uh, lack of fiscal policy discipline. We've seen um, really enormous uh, fiscal deficits and, and debt um, and amongst both um, con- conservative and, and liberal uh, party regimes, um, more progressive taxation. There's certainly been um, less of an emphasis uh, on uh, individual tax cuts um, from, uh, from conservatives. Um, you, know, you have central bank determined interest rates, with inflation targets, you know, the central bank inflation targets came in, in the early 90s. But one big thing that we've seen since the global financial crisis is a quantitative easing. That's uh, now a standard part of the uh, central bankers toolkit. Uh, flexible market determined exchange rates with sort of limited interventions. We're definitely seeing less uh, FX interventions um, in, in since really the, the 1990s. And, and, um, uh, and, and uh, they, they tend to be pretty, pretty rare. Um, in general, um, we, we've seen you know, trade barriers, quotas, and tariffs are, are now um, a commonplace idea. Um, we've seen you know, capital controls um, against high capital inflows. This is something that's more really promoted in, in, in emerging markets. But even in Canada, for example, things like you know, foreign buyer taxes uh, or foreign buyer bans on, uh, on housing mm-hmm. um, is arguably uh, a kind of capital control, um, depending right. on how you define uh, these sorts of things. Um, blender of last resort bailouts for too big to fail institutions. This has been uh, yeah, a centerpiece of, uh, of U.S. economic policy. Um, you know, everything from you know, the, the bank bailouts of 2008 to the Silicon Valley Bank um, receivership and, and, and bailout um, of, of 2023. Uh, industrial policy um, to meet economic objectives, not just foreign policy objectives. Um, and uh, Aggressive antitrust enforcement—that's um, that, certainly a, a new thing in the era of, uh, of big tech. And, and mm. uh, say, for example, Lena Khan's nomination to the FTC in in, uh, in the U.S. and just in general, the growth of, of regulation through the administrative state uh, is something that I think we've seen um, on both sides of the board. So, so those those are the, the ten um, points that I'd argue sort of maybe all part of some sort of a emerging sort of new new consensus called a new Washington consensus, new Ottawa consensus. Yeah, and it's interesting because you talk about like thinking back in sort of my own political life. If I go back to the '90s, uh, you have uh, you know every party arguing over who's going to balance the budget quicker. Whereas today, you have 
no one really talking about balancing the budget. Or so, so the so sort of the when we talk about a consensus, what's interesting is that you have um, you know parties that are supposed to be offering alternatives really converging on the same uh, policy. And I wanted to talk a bit about uh, you know trade policy in the U.S. For example, um, you know for a long time Republicans were seen as the free traders, right? And then mm-hmm. we got Donald Trump, who obviously took a very different view of these things. But then when he was defeated by Joe Biden. Joe Biden becomes president. Um, you see them continue essentially what was Trump's policy in, in a lot of trade areas. So is that, you know, do you see that continuing? Um, certainly United States. I don't know if you, uh, the other thing we could talk about is differences you see as a, as a Canadian living in the U.S. watching both sides of the border. Do you see any big differences between the way that this consensus is, is um, uh, coalescing there versus up here? Sure, sure. I, I think you know, there's, there's a few reasons why this is happening. Um, you know, one uh, economic reason is, is you know, there was certainly um, you know, the, the Great uh, Recession, uh, and, and uh, there, there's been certainly some pretty um, um, heterogeneous impacts of uh, things like globalization, automization, and, and um, um, things becoming um, more automated. Um, but I, I think more so, I think that the biggest contributor to this rise is really uh, a political one. Uh, so in, in the U.S. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, voters um, who are um, largely um, you know, socially conservative and economically progressive that are concentrated in Ohio and Pennsylvania, um, two states which have been essential in deciding almost every presidential election for the past few decades. And so Donald Trump was sort of elected on, on this uh, economic platform that sort of rejected um, you know, complete free trade in favor of you know, regulatory tariffs and quotas. Um, which um, you know, support um, a number of those, or, or attempt to support um, uh, the sort of uh, manufacturing jobs that are, that are based in, in Ohio and Pennsylvania. And, and you've seen sort of a, a continuation of this. Um, sort of on the Republican side, you now have uh, a, a lot of uh, anti-free market proponents, ranging from U.S. senators like J.D. Vance and, and Josh Hawley uh, to you know, powerful Washington think tanks. Um, you know, for example, the Heritage Foundation has is, is, um, changed a little bit um, to, to support sort of this, this idea of, of the new right. But there's several new think tanks like sort of Partnership Institute or American Compass. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the sort of new right, uh, which is sort of the term that's usually, uh, loosely used to describe this group of people, sort of emerges. It seems to be a, a very powerful new, you know, new coalition uh, in the GOP in the same way that the socialist left has become ascendant in, in, de- in the Democratic Party. On the Democratic side, what's happened is something similar. It's, you know, trying to get the same voters uh, in the Midwest, um, like Ohio and Pennsylvania, and, and the Democratic Party has sort of uh, begun to sort of rethink its stance on free trade you know, around the same time. Right. Uh, in the 2010s, it's, you know, Bernie Sanders, New Socialism. Uh, and, and you, know, you could think back to you know, 2016 when uh, this sort of group sort of post, uh, forced Hillary Clinton uh, to uh, speak negatively of, of the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, and revoke her support for it, the same deal that she negotiated called the gold standard. And, and more recently, um, you know, I think it's it's fascinating to look at what's happened with the Biden administration. You know, those uh, who wanted the, the the Biden administration or thought it would be sort of an extension of the Clinton-Obama, um, you know, Washington consensus years, um, uh, you know, with sort of light touch government expansions, instead got... Um, uh, but but you know some uh, care and consideration of of markets and market forces instead of got a, a takeover from the AOC Elizabeth Warren new socialist wing. So, mm-hmm. so we've seen a lot of new spending bills and, and and some pretty major 
um, deficit spending over the past couple of years, along with uh, you know continuation of, of of tariffs, new tariffs like on uh, on soup cans that have been imposed on, on Canada and, and China and other countries. But you know, how, how does Canada compare uh, uh, to the U.S. in terms of this new approach? I think it's similar but different. You know, Canada was a major exponent of the old Washington Consensus you know, that sort of crystallized in the 1980s. And you know, as, as I mentioned before, you know, the McDonald Commission, the Mulroney government supporting NAFTA, the Cretchen Martin fiscal reforms in the 90s, uh, and the fiscal surpluses of the Harper years, um, along with a lot of free trade deals uh, along the way in that period. I think the, the sort of anti-free market uh, sentiment or, or sort of new Ottawa consensus, uh, if you want to call it that, um, is, is definitely rising most prominently amongst sort of the Liberal Party um, mm-hmm. over the past 10 years. Um, think about, you know, opposition uh, to you know, growth in, in, in the energy sector. Um, think about, you know, foreign buyer taxes and, and bans on foreign purchases of housing. Um, you, know, so, you know, very much an affront to this idea of you know, having free capital flows. Think about the, the massive uh, increased amounts of government spending and debt. Um, it can, can, then at the same time, you know, you could think about the conservatives. You know, conservatives have always uh, in Canada have always sort of defended some non-market friendly things like you know supply management. Mm-hmm. You look at how um, you know, Andrew Scheer beat out um, Maxine Bernier uh, for you know sort of party leadership in, in 2018 on, on, on this particular issue you know, with sort of dairy subsidies and, and supply management. Um, uh, but I, I do think that the you know the Conservative Party uh, of Canada right now, at least um, with uh, Pierre Polyev as, as its leaders, is certainly closer to the older consensus. Mm. Um, but uh, you know, in, in the long run, in, in the decades uh, ahead, we'll, we'll have to see um, what happens. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. And and if you look at, uh, there's no question uh, in my view that the you know, current Liberal government has very different approach to markets than you know the previous Liberal administrations under Cretchen and Martin. And you look at just one example, the uh, via, the subsidies for electric vehicle battery plants. I mean, the amount of money that the federal Liberals and and to be fair, some of their, including Doug Ford in Ontario, who's a progressive conservative, the amount of money that they're committing to this essentially large industrial policy is just off the scale compared to any any of their sort of previous efforts. So it's going to be interesting to see if there is a change of government, you know, would a Pierre Polyev government continue down the road of these sort of massive industrial policy subsidies or, or would they take a different uh, a different turn? Um, I guess uh, I wanted to, to touch on, uh, we got one time for one more question here. I just wanted to ask you um, about uh, the biggest challenges that Canada's economy faces going forward. Um, you know, we, uh, again, come to the fact that you are Canadian living in, in the U.S. I think you have the benefit of, of comparing, you know, uh, what how things are at home versus what's going on down here. And what do you see as, as, as the biggest challenge or challenges facing the uh, Canadian economy in the coming years? I, I think, you know, the biggest thing is getting uh, uh, economic growth going again. Uh, GDP per capita in Canada has been flat over the past 10 years. Um, things like relaxing energy market regulations, relaxing land use regulations to get housing affordability under control, relaxing occupational licensing restrictions, uh, you know, particularly given um, how large you know, Canada's immigrant base is, a lot of people come to Canada with foreign licenses uh, that they can't use. Um, and, and so helping them um, you know, get to work and, and um, you know, using their skills, I, I think, is, is all essential part of this. And, and then getting the debt under control, I think, will, will be a huge part of the solution, I think. It's interesting to see how uh, Pierre Polyev has largely um, started uh, this discussion um, around 
um, economic stagnation in, in Canada uh, that, that we've seen over the past um, you know, 10 years or so, largely uh, during the period uh, when, when uh, Justin Trudeau has been in office. But it's interesting to see how uh, now, given how popular this topic of housing affordability has become and, and talking about the, the so-called gatekeepers and, and uh, relaxing land use regulations, you know, how quickly um, you know, the Trudeau liberals are, are, are trying to demonstrate some sort of um, competency on, on, on this issue. And, and we'll see what uh, what happens. But I, I think it's, um, you know, we're seeing some sort of a start on uh, recognizing that um, you know, growth in Canada is, is an issue. Um, but there's a long way to go. And I think we very much need uh, something like a, a new McDonald um, uh, commission um, to think about uh, ways in which we can um, promote um, economic growth in, in Canada. Yeah, that's a great point about the gatekeepers on housing. You know, uh, Mr. Proliev seems to have won the day and the Liberals are scrambling to sort of match him on these things. It'll be interesting to see if he can apply that same logic to many of the other uh, people who are gatekeepers and regulations that constrain uh, our economy in different ways um, uh, going forward. So, well, this has been great, John. Thanks so much uh, for taking the time to chat with us. John Hartley, again, a senior fellow with us here at the McDonald Laurie Institute. Uh, and thank all of you uh, for, for tuning in today. We'll catch you on the next podcast.